Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we usually gregariously read the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Sometimes, however, we veer into tertiary tomes, books that are not novelizations, but similarly owe their existence to a film. Tertiary tomes are creative, if scattered, bursts of cinematic violence. While they may have the verve to introduce vampiric bats, possessed cars, <laughs> and copycat serial killers into a usually more grounded universe, these elements don't cogently hang together, admirable as they are as choices. These books, through their fixation on compelling visuals and haunting mise-en-scene, sacrifice the interpersonal drama that underpins the film series they are sequelizing. Tertiary tomes are, ultimately, a bizarre mix of vivid genre elements and samey character tropes that seem too familiar to excite. We're your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. And I'm Andrew Marco. Yeah, we're not used Brian to the is... rhythm there, because we're, no. we're used to having a Hannah. But yeah, I was it's, don't... yeah the, it's a... I don't like being last. I don't like being last. All right, <laughs> let me do my best Hannah impression. Friday the 13th Road Trip is a novel written by Eric Morris. The fourth book in his Camp Crystal Lake series, Road Trip, follows the continued rampage of Jason Voorhees's... I've never had to say it with a possessive. How do we say this? Jason what is it? What is Voorhees. it that the one character calls Jason Voorhees late? She's late in the book. She's like, I can't remember what he's called. Uh, Jonesy Morbies. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to help me either. Uh, the continued rampage of Jason's mask. Having survived the carnival fire. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to take that again. I never read your sentences ahead of time. No, Having no one survived... does. <laughs> Having survived the carnival fire of book three, the possessed hockey mask feeds on a bullied high schooler's hurt and animosity in order to slaughter a slew of his peers. Surrounded by vestiges of the haunted carnival, can this new crop of teens stop Jason before he does them all in? Friday the 13th Road Trip was published in 1994. It was the final book published in the series, though author Eric Morris later released a fifth manuscript, Friday the 13th, The Mask of Jason Voorhees, on his website. Our returning guest today, the British correspondent for the QAnon Anonymous podcast, as well as the host, writer, and I would say just overall parent uh, figure of the podcast, <laughs> Vaccine, The Human Story. Uh, Annie Kelly, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thanks so much for having me back on. Of course, yeah. Uh, let me start off by asking, because, you know, we've been in touch uh, just a little bit since you came on the first time, and and your your sole request for <laughs> a, a second uh, book to cover was something spooky. Now, <laughs> do you have a relationship to the Friday the 13th series? Uh, and if so, how do you feel about these movies? Um. Yeah, no, I had forgotten that actually. But yeah, I think you uh, were offering various books, and I said, <laughs> um, <laughs> I said, no, I'm not interested. Particularly, I'm not interested in um, cartoon ones because I actually um, have quite a fear of cartoons. Um, so, like, of, of animation. And even though a novelization is obviously not like cartoon animation, um, I still feared it would kind of make me imagine the animations in my mind's eye and that would be far too scary having said that 
actual scary stuff. <laughs> Forget this whole book series. Let's dive into this. How far back does your fear of cartoons go and how did it originate? I don't know. I, I watched them as a kid and I really liked them, but I think it was somewhere around um, when everyone was getting into like Family Guy and stuff like that. I just found it like too like repulsive to watch. <laughs> and I remember if, I was just like really, just really like disgusting. And uh, I felt that way. Yeah, a lots of people then got into Rick and Morty and when they were saying it's really clever, it's really funny, mm-hmm. you know, come and watch it. And again, I still found that like, yeah, too, too revolting to look at. Um, so <laughs> I don't know if it's just like a fear or a deep distaste. I still don't mind kind of looking at the, the old Disney ones um, that I remember from my childhood, but um, anything like beyond that essentially i find just very ugly i wonder if it has to do with how many episodes these shows are putting out like you you're making a terrific point i've never considered which is that so many of the popular cartoons of our time are a bit grotesque looking Mm, mm, yeah and i wonder if it's because they have to churn out whatever 20 episodes a year it, does it somehow speed the animation process? It's a sad fact that when I see an animated film, you know, I, this is not even really comparable, but when in 2018 when uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse came out and everyone's reaction was sort of like, animation, but it's good and I like looking at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think I think the sad thing is, though, that that has put me off just all animation, like even good stuff now. Like I just don't, I didn't want to see the Spider-Verse movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I know like lots of people are really into um, uh, what's the Japanese filmmaker who did all uh, those? Miyazaki. Oh, Miyazaki. Yes. All those lovely films. I just don't even want to see them. I find them like just a bit too... <laughs> I don't know, wrong. I think it's like, it's something about that period when a lot of people were watching cartoons, I think just put me off the thing, even when it's good. Now, I just find something like slightly uncanny about it. Sure, sure. I find it very difficult to understand how the human brain recognizes a cartoon human. Like that, this sounds like I'm smoking pot or something. I'm really not. But (laughs) like, since it's all colors and lines, I find it very strange that, that I can turn on a TV show I've never seen and be like, oh, that man, Peter Griffin, is a man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, this is, yeah, it, it reminds me of, you know, the kind of uncanny valley phenomenon, because this is, I think, how when I was once describing this effect that I had uh, to my partner, he kind of said, oh, you have a much wider uncanny valley than most other people. Because, <laughs> like, the uncanny valley is basically like our facial recognition, like, um, cognition. Uh, cognitive ability in our heads mm-hmm. uh, go from literally you know two dots and a kind of smile we like recognize that as a facsimile of a human mm-hmm. face right all the way up to completely photorealistic um mm-hmm. just a photograph essentially we recognize both these things as human and along the way it can kind of become more and more realistic but there's this drop off when it's very very close to photorealistic mm-hmm. but not quite there where suddenly our kind of empathy just completely drops um, for it. And we, we find it almost, it's the opposite of empathy. We we find it kind of repulsive and scary. And so, yeah, so I guess mine is like just wider than most people, but everyone has it essentially. Something that looks very, very close to human, but isn't really like bothers us and frightens us. And funnily enough, this is 
an effect that lots of horror movies use, and you might even say Friday the 13th uses with the mask. Well, I was going to say, uh, speaking of masks, that when I watch Halloween, which of course is a different series, uh, I don't... I don't think that I'm looking at William Shatner when Michael Myers is walking around in the William Shatner mask, but <laughs> it is it is tapping into that uh, feeling of, oh, this is something I recognize as human, and, and in the case of Shatner, like something I assign personality to, and it's being presented mm-hmm. in a way that strips it of sort of all personality, mm-hmm. just this faceless killing machine, which... I, I get what you mean about the the human brain recognizing something as almost human, and I feel like that came up in like early two thousands video games a lot, where you know Kevin Spacey mm. starred in a video game in like two thousand eight, and there were just screenshots of him all over the internet because it was so creepy to see mm. a person we recognized, but his eyes were fully dead. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a problem with video animation for a long time, wasn't it? They couldn't get the eyes right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I feel like it's still not, I, I'm not being fooled, you know, <laughs> these days. It's just getting a little more, uh, a little more credible. Um, but so what do you mean by that in the in the case of Friday the 13th? What's, what unca- Uncanny Valley is happening? And, and Andrew Marco has put on the Jason mask. So the mood is taking hold. Oh, no. Oh, my God. I looked away for a, a second. I feel a little woozy, but I'm there. feeling much more fit than I did before. <laughs> do, you feel, do you feel much hairier? That came up in the book a lot. Yeah, which is not something I would ever think of Jason Voorhees as being a particularly hairy fellow, but... Yeah, I mean, I guess we should explain this for, for your audience who haven't read this book. Um, but not only does the, the possessed mask of Jason Voorhees um, possess you, when you put it on and you become filled with his murderous rage. Uh, but it also makes you bigger, stronger, and hairier. Yes. And they mention the hairier thing like two or three times. And it's this is the fourth book in this series. And I, I really appreciate that you just read it without the context of the previous three. It must have been a little confusing. Wait, so so have you guys read the, the other three? Yes, so we're doing yes. essentially a little oh. mini-series where we do all five oh, of them, I see. including the right. unpublished right. Uh, manuscript. And this, would you be shocked to learn that this effect doesn't really happen to the other people in the other books? No. Oh, that's no. interesting. So is it because the the character in this book... Teddy that puts on the mask is a, a little a little dweeb compared to the other jocks and so it's sort of giving him a fighting chance as an antagonist essentially against these uh, three big football players um, and I guess then it emphasizes like what he lacks compared to them mm-hmm. so yeah he's he's smaller he's scrawnier he's weaker and I guess has less hair <laughs> I, mean, I you, you know i guess i'm like in my mind's eye i'm kind of imagining these kind of big fully grown football players against um yeah against this kind of little maldeveloped dweeb that puts on the mask yeah i will say i appreciate in the fourth book that the author was willing to kind of because the first three villains are a hunter sort of a big hulking you know, I don't know what we call the second guy, but he the was, he was guy, very large as well. The second guy was like a very, uh, 
uh, very Jason esque. He was very physically intimidating, but he he essentially was like uh, um, a person struggling with mental illness who had suffered severe abuse, who was very docile. And then when the mask yeah. was put on, he decided, you know what? Actually, I'm going to take revenge on everyone who's wronged me. Sure. And the third one was a big, creepy carnival mm-hmm. attendant. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time where the physicality of the person who puts on the mask is sort of what it has to change in some way to meet the quote-unquote realism of this story. Uh, though I feel like you could just say that, you know, the mask itself and its evil could just make you more powerful. I don't know. Yeah, um, that's, but... that's so interesting because I guess I didn't really realize that this was part of a um, uh, a book series. Um, and so I assume... I've only ever seen the first Friday the 13th movie. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any of the sequels. Were you um, culturally aware of Jason and the hockey mask yes, as a I was, thing? Yes, I was culturally aware of that, yeah. yes. Because that's the weird thing with the first one that you don't get so much of the iconography with yeah, it being his mother's I mean, the killer. Yeah, the first one... So, you know, the first one always kind of um, confused me a little, I suppose, because it has, like, the reveal is it's this little old lady mm-hmm. um, who's, like, been doing all of the killings. And you're just like, hang on, I'm pretty sure I've, like, been watching the killer, like, for one thing, tower over all of, like, their <laughs> victims. For another thing, like, throw them across rooms and stuff. Like... Th- it was it was already an annoying twist in the sense that um it was already an annoying twist in the sense that they were just like oh it's this character you've never heard of which is mm-hmm. like always annoying like you know yeah. you should get you should be able to do the sherlock thing of like it picking it's out. not a real who done it it's just yeah. a... um but that like particularly annoyed me cuz i was just like well it doesn't even like make sense <laughs> kind of consistently with like what we've seen of the killer for it to be a little old lady so in a way i thought the book was making up for what I assume that the author had also noticed this massive inconsistency and was essentially like being like there's a, a supernatural explanation for it which I'll write into my book which is that the mask makes you bigger and stronger. Right. Well, it's a weird thing because these these four books that we've read are essentially a spin-off of the ninth Friday the 13th movie. And most of the sequels are relatively grounded where Jason is just taking revenge on teenagers in the area but he's still a person and at a certain point he dies he's resurrected he continues to be resurrected in supernatural ways so by the ninth film which is called Jason Goes to Hell it ends with him being dragged down to hell but it's also a movie in which characters are eating Jason's heart and then his soul is going from body to body so it's only in one film where they actually have this sort of supernatural arc established. Mm. And I guess that's what they decided to do with these novels. And I think wisely, probably it's simpler to just do the mask than to say it's his heart. It's a weird slug that comes out of his body and it it makes it a little more streamlined and straightforward. Yeah. I would also like to make a complaint (laughs) about the, about this because i didn't realize there were four of these and so you give the british person 
the one which starts with like a description of an American football game. <laughs> I had no clue what was going on in that first chapter. No clue at all. It was just like, it was like, I might as well have been reading Greek trying to understand what was happening in that football game. <laughs> Would you believe that as, a, as an American person who identifies as male and is 30 years old, I also didn't understand any of that? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, that makes me feel better. I forgot it even began with a football game. It was that uh, sort of uninspiring. Here's my thing. Just a little football rant that'll be quick. The thing I don't get understand about the American obsession with football is like our our movies are moving us in one direction, right? Where they're like they're like all action, all spectacle, mm. like you know, all the uh, movies with like more nuance are sort of being crushed and. Uh, as Steven Soderbergh said once, he sat on a plane and he saw the guy next to him watching Transformers and fast-forwarding through the dialogue. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't understand how the most popular American sport is one where we're simulating combat, but it gets paused every, like, eight seconds. It seems out of sure. step with our, like, our sort of gluttonous action need. Does that make sense? Like, our appetite? I mean, mm. I feel like most American... Mm. Most sports that Americans watch, probably aside from basketball, are pretty slow. Baseball is slow. Football stops a lot. Golf is slow. I feel like basketball and hockey are the only ones that really move yes. at a pace. I think hockey should be the basketball most popular and hockey one. Are, uh, mm-hmm. At least comprehensible from an outside perspective. <laughs> it's a bit like right, soccer. Be- you know, it's just like a child can understand it. You know, two sure. teams and they have to get the ball into the net. And yet Americans don't, you know love soccer to the same degree that the rest of the world does so yeah it's kind of interesting that they don't and soccer is a you know aggressive fast sport it is and yet it's football that american football that wins the day hockey is also funny because you can't see the puck most of the time it's like just a funny fact about uh it's Mm. it's like deliberately kind of uh on unfollowable anyway untelevisable when was the last time someone wore a hockey mask like this in a professional setting it's basically a historical relic right i mean it's gotta be yeah I, yeah even that's really by the funny time these i just think of it out. as the friday the 13th mask i sort of forget right. that it has like an actual um function outside of those movies yeah they couldn't actually do a scene in one of these movies where he goes into like a hockey setting with the mask and everyone's like that guy's supposed to be here and then he starts stabbing people because he, <laughs> yeah, i think there was uh, like, Why are you wearing that he would walk mask? in and they would go they would go dude like we have under armor stuff put that on mm. <laughs> and yet in like some of the movies uh, which take place in like the 2000s they're like, oh, man, that goalie was so pissed. And I would say if I saw this, I would not be like, oh, yes, a goalie mask. That goalie was yeah. so pissed. <laughs> like, if I did not know this no. is Jason Voorhees' mask, I'd say, I don't, I don't know if that is. <laughs> uh, Annie, going back to your point about the mask changing people, um, mm. there's an argument to be made, well, in either direction. You can either say, having read these four books as we have, that the author is playing really fast and loose with what the mask can do because Mm. the effects we've seen so far are a kind hunter puts on the mask and becomes evil. So basically... He's not kind. He is not kind. 
the hunter, he's like shooting. No, well, oh, he might be there the out of off season. season, but like everyone in that book is like <laughs> he's shooting animals in the off season. <laughs> Everyone's a monster. Look at the look at the world's problems. The hunter is not one of them. Um, but the everyone in that book is like, oh, my friend, the hunter. I love that guy, and then he kills them. So. It mm. fully morphs that one guy's personality. Mm. Then in book two, the guy that's the victim of all this different abuse, it does morph his personality and that it makes him murderous, but it utilizes existing... An internal darkness. Exactly. Things that could qualify as motivations. Yeah. Then in the third one, we start to see this physical transformation thing. It doesn't happen like it does here, but there's touches like the guy who puts on the Jason mask has all these snake tattoos and the tattoos wriggle whenever he kills someone. Ooh. It makes me wonder with this fourth book, is the mask like gaining power where now it's able mm. to physically Because it's got its kill count up, it can Yes, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I was just gonna say, yeah, I I kind of liked the the choice of villain in this. Mm-hmm. Um it reminded me a lot of... So I, I actually read a lot of books like this when I was a teenager. Because um, I read a lot of like point horror mm-hmm. um, and, and stuff like that. Um, I, I really loved those books. Um, and so I, I sort of kind of slipped into the style quite easily. Um, but one thing that I quite liked was... Because those books were always really just like really obvious in who they bad guy would turn out to be and it was never going to be the like bullied little dork it would always be like the the cool popular guy right. i always had a kind of sense that the kind of books that the kind of people who write these books like were not popular in high school and uh uh mm-hmm. bias comes out so i quite liked <laughs> uh <laughs> quite liked um yeah this kind of yeah this sort of uh this sort of victim um character sort of becoming uh evil and kind of yeah sort of seeing into you kind of at first see him externally and he's you know just this sweet little nerd who's kind of oppressed by the uh football players and and mocked by the cheerleaders um and then you kind of sort of see inside his mind and it's like a little bit like nastier actually mm-hmm. do you know and yeah. then he puts on the mask and then he he you know fully fully becomes um uh, uh, Jason Voorhees a psycho killer um <laughs> And yeah, I quite, I quite appreciated that. I thought I genuinely didn't expect that one. I, if I, from the cast of characters, it wasn't who I expected to become the killer. There are certainly a fair more amount of Mr. X in this novel, in part because we find out who the killer is much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jason is not transformed with the mask until later in the book because the opening chapter, the point of view characters who I initially assumed would be our are Jason kind of given the structure of these other novels are these kind of rednecks driving through town to just go to a cave. I think they just want yeah. to go hang out in a cave. Stu characters and were really quite like sweetly done the whole sort of backstory about how they were just kind of middle-aged guys who like were part of a bowling league. And one <laughs> of the guys came back from like, I can't remember from some exciting outdoors activity. And then, He'd like told them all about it and they all wanted to do outdoor activities. Yeah. So they decided to go caving. I just, I thought it was like a sweet little backstory. I believed it. I, the implication there, or maybe it was explicitly said, was that everyone in the bowling league, not just these two guys, started getting into extreme 
sports yeah yeah because they all felt left out yeah what a funny way for like a midlife crisis to set in (laughs) it's not oh i've been married for 20 years my eyes are wandering or whatever it's like you know uh wait rick went bungee jumping (laughs) 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 but even they are kind of dispatched relatively quickly in the course of the novel and not even by jason they're eaten by bats because Mm. That's something else that's happened in these novels a lot, Annie, is the town of Crystal Lake itself has, like, a bad energy. Like, dogs mm. are biting and killing people. Like, all sorts of sort of bad blood, no pun intended, is literally mm. in the air. And there's something wrong with both the people in the town, but also the nature in the area. That's cool. One character, uh, I think in book two, figures out that Jason will come back eventually because all of these crazy crimes start happening. Like someone like kills their husband and, and all of this different stuff. And she mm. goes, oh, that must be that the mask is coming back. <laughs> Can someone like remind me of the um, actual origin story of Jason himself? I know he drowns sure. in a lake, but is there a whole bit before where... He's sort of persecuted by the town, like the town That's bullies him. That's added. So, as Marco, it's sort this of is all you. Yeah, this is my franchise. Uh, <sighs> as it's established in the original series, Jason is at first just a boy who drowned in the lake because the counselors who were supposed to be watching weren't paying attention. They were having sex. <laughs> and that's why he drowned. Yeah. But then it's sort of established that maybe he didn't drown. Mm-hmm. and that he was living in the woods all those years, saw his mother decapitated, and that's actually what's causing him mm. to take revenge, is that his mother died and he is angry at people. It's not established, I think, until Freddy versus Jason, so 30 years into this franchise, that in some sort of dream sequence in Jason's brain, you see that he was being tormented by kids who pushed him off the dock, at which point he drowned. But you don't know if that's a freddy kruegerization of what actually happened mm. or if that's actually what happened that's more or less his origin story right because freddy is also that's so interesting trying to like oh. puppet jason in that movie yeah it kind of it's almost like um when you're like reading about like a kind of mythical character from 2000 years ago and people are like oh there's all of these kind of alternative sort of like origin <laughs> stories to them you know, as the kind of myth traveled and kind of went through, you know, different kind of cultural renaissances, it, it changed. Except it's just all about like a, a movie franchise that began like 20 years ago. <laughs> Do any of you have a grip on the various characters in this book? <laughs> because more so than in the past ones, I found the teenagers to be very indistinct aside from the killer. I agree. And I had a lot of yeah. trouble differentiating what their arcs were supposed to be, what their wants and personalities, you know? The only character names I can remember off the top of my head exactly who they were are the state trooper, his <laughs> wife, Tina, Tiny <laughs> Tina, and her uh, philandering friend, Cliff. The state trooper stuff is like my favorite part of the book yeah i kind of love it because he's taking advantage of the fact that these the new lore of the the town is that oh yeah jason's dead but his mask is like possessing people and i can use that to commit crimes yeah (laughs) so for the listener 
And let me know if I get this wrong, guys, because I listened to the audiobook just as a because I didn't have a lot of time, and I think that's part of the reason some of these things didn't stick super well for me. So the, there's basically a B plot that comes so early in the book, it seems like it might be the A plot, which is about mm. a is it a state trooper whose wife Tina is tiny Tina unfaithful with his coworker. His best friend. His best friend. Even worse than a co-worker. That cuts deeper. Uh, yeah. And it's like the room. He basically intends to, and he does, kidnap them. And then uh, does he get away with the murder? I'm trying to remember. Well, no, he gets he away not. with the murder in that. He definitely, he kill, he, he's trying. I don't know exactly what sort of murder-suicide situation he's trying to do. Because he he's trying to make it look like his wife... That Cliff killed Tina, mm-hmm. yes. the wife, which is successful. He's able to use, you know, put the gun in Cliff's hands, pull the trigger at his wife. But then Cliff escapes, at which point he sort of has to chase after him and eventually bumps into the actual A plot of the story. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But he, I forget, because I forget how he dies, but he definitely shoots Cliff, I think, if I remember correctly. Yes. Uh, uh- I am a big proponent in these books, and if Hannah was on right now, she would argue with me, but this is the beauty of her not being on an episode is I just get to say my opinion. Um, I like when they break format, right? Like, I, yeah. I, I understand part of the opinion, or part of the appeal of Friday the 13th is that it's formulaic, and if you want a certain type of slasher movie, you're going to get that by watching one of these, but given that there's so many movies, and now we're on the fourth book... I like when they sort of break the mold. So when I thought Mm -hmm. that the book was going to be about a guy who, due to the rumors about the Jason mask, was going to pin a bunch of motivated murders on a ghost, I was like, hell yeah. Sounds great. No, I agree. I thought that was really charming. Um, And is the plot of a Friday the 13th movie already. The fifth one. Oh yeah, it turns out somebody else is pretending to be. It's Jason just the guy the dressed one. as Jason the whole time. <laughs> but that one—that's um, a but, twist at the end. Uh, sorry, go yeah. ahead, Annie. So I was just going to say uh, to your question about the teenagers. I think I actually probably could uh, distinguish all of them. Uh, so there was Summer, who was the protagonist, mm-hmm. uh, and she was her thing that was, she, was that she was funny. She was a sassy. Right. There was Mindy, her best friend, and her thing was that she was stupid. Mm-hmm. There was Belinda, her other best friend. Her thing was that she was bossy. She was also the only black female character, which struck me as a little bit iffy. Kind of Probably f- the only black female character so far in these books, if I'm thinking back. Yeah, the the like black characterization was like not fantastic. Like the way that they just kept on making them be like girl and like <laughs> yeah at one point uh russ who is the uh, a black male character and who is belinda's boyfriend like refers to himself as homeboy i don't know just it jarred a little <laughs> yeah it, then there is danny who is mindy's boyfriend and his thing is that he's just like kind of dumb i think a bit like mindy but also that he uh gets very cross with mindy because she keeps on telling him that she loves him mm-hmm and then there is Slick, who is Summer's ex-boyfriend, who is just uh, uh, a bad dude. A, a ne'er-do-well. Uh, <laughs> yeah. A ne'er-do-well, yeah. Whose thing is that he's just very cool 
um, and uh, loves cheating on Summer, I guess. Yeah, he cheats on Summer uh, prior to the beginning of the book. A lot of the tension for Summer in the book is, I still have feelings for Slick. He's kind of coming Mm. on to me. Should I trust him? I don't know. And Mm. he has, uh, I wish I had the passage in front of me, but he had his explanation for why he cheated at the end of the book is something like, you don't understand. I just cheated as an impulse thing. It didn't mean anything. And it's like, that's what cheating is. What are you talking about? <laughs> What's weird is that I don't actually think that bit happens, actually. It's like Summer has a fantasy. So this is another thing, uh, I guess, another character distinguisher for Summer, which is that she uh, um, she is very anxious and she will often play the kind of worst scenario that could happen in her head Mm -hmm. which ends up helping her in the end when she finally struggles against jason right but she has like a her and slick they go out to the uh lake and they sit down and and she plays out a scenario in her head where he apologizes for cheating wow um and then they start making out and then they get stabbed horrified Um, to have not picked up on that and to be hosting the podcast (laughs) <laughs> but I mean, that. but you are right that what's even worse is this is in Summer's fantasy. Yeah. Do you know that this is, this is her fantasy explanation, the best like possible scenario she can construct in her kind of very sort of anxious, overactive imagination for Slick is still him saying something like, I'm sorry I cheated. It was just because I wanted to. And And the weird implication, if that's the good justification the weird implication is that she thinks that he cheated because he was madly in love with who he cheated with like it it just doesn't Mm. if you follow that logic it's very confusing Mm. yeah like but i you would think that she would just see that he's kind of um a flirt you know that he's kind of that he kind of has a problem in that way yeah. I got the impression this author has not got the best grasp of the minds of teenage girls reading. Well, reading between there's the lines. a lot of them in these books. Every single one. <laughs> and, it, and it is tough because I, I listen to all of the audiobooks for these, and I love uh, the guy who's reading them. I, I love that he made these available because they're essentially not available, but it's tough to tell. He, he tends to have a similar affect for some of the teenage girls. I that see. it's tougher to yeah. read on. Though this book was the first one where they actually had some guest appearances, if you listen to the audiobook. Oh, there were other people uh, speaking some of the lines. Look, uh, oh, they you had know, like voice actors? Fingers crossed that we have the narrator of the audiobook on next week. I think we are going to. But I- I'm so grateful he made these audiobooks. They're they're great, but the the guest actors did not work for me. And <laughs> the one you just wanted him. Well, the one playing summer is way too low in the mix, which I know it's got to be hard to be doing like post on the the guy literally does audiobooks as like a passion project. I mean, it's so admirable. And That's as so an- cool. it's so cool. And and as Andrew said, like these are the reason Annie that we had you read this thing on the Internet Archive is because these books cost like ninety dollars. You can't find them anywhere. Um, what? Sorry, what's that? Oh, I just said what? Oh, yeah, okay. it's in shock. <laughs> <laughs> to 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 clarify, in in shock. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a great thing that he's doing, like putting out these audiobooks that are uh, just a way for people who would never drop ninety dollars on one of these to still experience them. Uh, but it must be really hard to do 
to do all the production on it, and he puts a lot of music in. It's it's a really cool project. Uh, yeah, sound effects, gunshots, thunder, no rain. It's all great. It's really cool. Voice actors are hard, though. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I speak with experience. Did you know that it's difficult people do people who do audiobooks? Like, I can't speak for like really professional situations, but a lot of situations where you do audiobooks, you only get paid for usable hours. Wow. Yeah. You- what does that mean? So if it takes me six hours to record an hour of an audiobook, I will get paid for an hour. Oh, I see. So you get paid for the output and not the, not the input. Exactly. Upsetting. Yeah. Anywho, I thought the voice actors were uh, a little all over the place. And there were weird touches where <laughs> just a child at one point randomly was like, chapter 26. And I thought, he hasn't like even been part. saying chapter numbers up to this <laughs> point. It's no chapter numbers mentioned. And then a child yells chapter 26. <laughs> but uh, back to the content That's... of the actual book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that does sound like a very different, I guess, um, uh yeah reading experience than me just sat there reading it on the internet archive i read it over over the period of the last two days which is probably why it's quite fresh in my mind and i can remember the i prefer doing what you did because i think that it sticks in my mind a lot better to read it and see the dialogue coming from the specific characters yeah but uh but we this is our what third episode this weekend we're cranking them out (laughs) i will say i think something i realized and this is it's probably true of the movies, but we don't realize it to the same degree is that like it's there isn't that much variety across the franchise in terms of characterization. There tends to be, mm-hmm. as you sort of said, when you name the characters, you know, there's the bossy one, the funny mm-hmm. one, the promiscuous one. These are tropes yeah. of the films that maybe, you know, don't strike as hard in the movies because you'll see a very charismatic actor or something Mm -hmm. in it whereas if you're just reading the books and there are times where i'm like okay i'm still thinking of the names from number two Mm. and i can't remember the names from number four even though i know they're different enough characters it's just it's tough when you have to traffic in tropes to such a degree that it's hard to sometimes distinguish across a series like this i was just gonna say that that was a real commonality i think to the to all the point horror books as well, the characters were just sort of meant to, I guess, um, be the kind of characters that would uh, give you a variety of responses to, I guess, a, a horror situation, a, a murder or a ghost or what have you. Um, and that's really all their like main function is, essentially. So you do just kind of get like stock tropes over and over and it allows you to read a lot of them over and over so talk to me about point horror i'm looking at the wikipedia page right now what was the um because i haven't heard of this before what was the the through line of these books did they star the same protagonist were they in the same universe no not at all so they were um i guess like uh, did you guys read the goosebumps books mm-hmm. a oh, few wait, of them. oh is that a british thing goosebumps? no we we they were pretty no, they're big american over here. oh okay yeah i couldn't remember um Yes, uh, so it was like the Goosebumps books, but I guess just aimed at like a slightly older old audience. So like instead of kind of um, bef- under 10s, just kind of like 10 to 13 year olds or whatever. Um, and yeah, it was just kind of a horror scenario and a kind of very sort of easily written, easily published, easily read in the course of an afternoon sort mm-hmm. of scenario. And I used to get these, they were, I think, 
I think they were a bit outdated actually by the time I was reading them but my dad's very into charity bookshops and there were always hundreds of them there Mm -hmm. presumably from people of the generation above me who'd kind of aged out of them and there were so many so I would just always just and they're selling them for like five pence so I'd just always pick up yeah a whole bunch of them and, and read them all um but yeah they were a lot like this they were really really similar uh, kind of usually set around kind of teenagers uh they find themselves in a kind of abandoned house or yeah they or a kind of the discover the school's haunted or something mm-hmm. something silly like that um and yeah have to fight their way out sort of that that beach read type dynamic where it's like mm. some sort of central mystery and it's a in retrospect kind of a, a simple setup payoff but because it's coming at you so fast it's satisfying yes yes exactly i'm looking at the uh the list of books here and it's they were published from 1979 to 2014 and it seems like the 2014 ones were very much trying to take a turn into modern sensibilities so the last two books published were called wikipedia and mm. another one called Followers, which could just be about a stalker, but also could be them no, trying to catch it's it. Not. It is. <laughs> I, I, I've never read it, but I 100% guarantee it's a it's social media horror thing. I want to see a horror movie called Wikipedia or Wikipedia. I would love to go to the theaters mm. and buy a ticket for that. Oh, I have the plot. I'm sure it's about editing Wikipedia entries to be like, Andrew Overby was killed by, you know, a rocket launcher on June yeah. 4th. And then you go kill Andrew Overby with a rocket launcher. That's pretty good, actually. That's actually, if that's not what it's about, we have to write that. Yes, we're, <laughs> co- we're doing verbal copywriting of this concept. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that they, like, follow, I guess, uh, trends of horror movies. Yeah. So, you know, uh, kind of, yeah, there's a sort of a uh, new trend for kind of uh horror that is sort of set in the kind of digital medium uh kind of ghost in the machine there um and yeah kind of have i guess things like unfriended and stuff like that mm-hmm. and then point horror kind of follows sweet i had no idea they were still making books they all they all felt so old when i was reading them it seems like they closed up shop about eight years ago but i should add that speaking of unfriended in 2013 there was a point horror book called defriended so they were leaning into it. <laughs> um, all right, the plot of this book. So as you as you were saying, Annie, it starts at an, uh, an American football game, and who knows even what happens? They don't win. I think they. I think they. They win. They do win. Slick does. Slick. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't have the don't have the terminology. Slick <laughs> does the final goal. Uh huh. That wins the game yeah gets he gets the basket right yeah (laughs) and i'm i I think that the the next game is the impetus for traveling in the first place right are they coming home from the game or heading i thought they were coming home coming coming home yeah essentially that's what brings them into contact with the geography of crystal lake which this these books never leave crystal lake so even in the third one the carnival the carnival, of course, came to Crystal Lake. Okay, so from the football game, we go to the trooper. My, my, probably my favorite part of the. Is book. this after the open? This is after the opening chapter. That's all about the buddies who meet the trooper. Do they not? 
Uh, is that who right. they speak yeah. to when they come through town? They the the spelunking buddies do briefly meet the trooper uh, and hurt a spider, a poor spider. Yeah, the, the opening kill of the book. There is a Goodreads review of this book that I found really funny, where somebody was like, "Kill count: one spider, one bat, and fourteen humans." And then he goes on to be like, well, "Yeah, when this book opened, I saw a spider killed right away, but then I had to wait a while before the humans, which bummed me out." So what? What is the ultimate fate of the spelunkers? That's something that I feel like got away from They're me. They're killed by bats. One of them is killed by a bat, but isn't the other one just just disappears or something? Let me go to the uh, very accurate deaths in the Friday Thirteenth novel sub wiki. <laughs> um, Donnie and Stu it says are both swarmed and killed by bats. It says their killer is bats. Yeah, I think. It may actually never be said about one of them, the one that goes sort of deeper into the cave, I think where Jason's shrine presumably mm-hmm. is. But I think we are then led to led to believe he was ripped apart by bats because um, when Summer gets taken down there, she sort of notices that kind of body parts are sort of strewn around. Right, right, um, right, right. I've just been poisoned by Hollywood where they, they don't show you a character's death and then they reveal in the next movie that they survived and it's a twist. I've been poisoned. <laughs> like, I have to see people torn limb from limb to believe anything. Maybe that I happens mean, in the fifth one. Have you guys read that yet? We have not. The and one that's it, on the internet? It is. Maybe Donnie comes back. It is like four times as long as any of these books. No way. Yeah. So the author who... And it also ties in a what is considered an unrelated television show called Friday the 13th that was produced by the same people. But I think it brings the actual film franchise together with this TV show, which was about haunted objects. So it's it's going to be exciting. The thing is that the author, he wanted to write a bunch of these, and he writes four, and then Berkeley Books is like, that's enough, we're good. And he keeps talking for years about I'm going to write a fifth one. And I want to say it's something like 10 years later, he publishes the fifth one on his website. And I think he was just brimming with ideas because truly Mm. these audiobooks are four hours long. The the one for the next book is 12 hours long. (laughs) Man. Yeah. It's every idea he's well, ever Well, I mean, had. I kind of got the sense he was brimming with ideas even in this book. Mm-hmm. There's so many moving parts. You've got, yeah, the state trooper who's setting up an elaborate plot to kill his wife but make it look like it was a ghost. You've got um, Teddy, the little nerd who's going to put on the Jason mask and slaughter his classmates. Um, and then you've got Bats, which... Like, actually are responsible for a lot of the deaths. <laughs> yes. Um, According to the wiki, at least three of the deaths at are At least three, bats. yeah. And certainly I would say they were accomplices in some others, even if they didn't deal the killing yeah. blow. And it wasn't what I was expecting, do you know? Mm-hmm. So it felt, it felt like maybe this was a lot of ideas all at once that he had to grip in. And it's sort of like part supernatural, part, part just kind of uh, slasher. It feels like, yeah, it feels like the there's a very creative mind behind these. Um, and maybe maybe there were going to be even more ideas in this, but he was held back by his um, 
publishing company that since he's been unshackled from them, he's free <laughs> just to let, you know, may, yeah, maybe maybe even more killers, maybe even more types of vicious vampiric animal. Can I ask you guys a question? Maybe this was explained in previous books. Why were the bats mechanical? Or why did they keep on saying Great. Um, that I'm ready. when... When Russ hit them with a bat, they made a metallic sound. They they made a point of saying that a couple of times, but I didn't understand. One element that this book has that is not really present in book two or three is that it directly invokes things from the previous book. Like, it actually rewards the fact that maybe you read the previous book, which obviously... Mm. You didn't, Annie, because I didn't even tell you this was the fourth in a series. So, um, (laughs) but uh, in the third book, the carnival comes to town. The mask possesses a, a guy who's like the mechanic of the carnival. And as the book goes on, the spirit of the mask seems to be like metastasizing outward, such that it's infecting things at the carnival. So late in the movie, a movie, late in the book, the a character is trying to get away from the killer and these statues like wax statues come to life and try to hold her in place so that she can be killed the implication being that like the mask is starting to possess objects uh mm-hmm. and the mechanical bats if i'm remembering correctly were part of one of the can the carnival rides and came alive in I that see. book which is sort of an interesting idea because the carnival burns to the ground uh, sort of as a uh, to wipe the slate clean, right? Like, we're going to do book four. It's not going to be the carnival. Mm. But then Eric Morse, the author, says, okay, well, bats can fly above fire, so maybe they're still around. And there's another part of this book, right, where they come across, like, abandoned carnival equipment, and there's a carousel, creepy... yeah. Yeah, yeah, the carousel, yeah. And it's this creepy moment of, like, finding a a working haunted carousel in the woods. I loved that stuff. I thought, if you're going to write a Friday the 13th series, you've got to assume that the type of person who reads book four would maybe also have read books one, two, and three. So, you know, go ahead and reward that. Mm. Yeah. Especially because, you know, they are... The setup for where the mask is is always kind of set up at the end of the last book. Mm -hmm. But even what you say about the carousel itself in the carnival... There's a a child who comes to the carnival who is so excited to ride the carousel and he goes on it and it kind of goes out of control and injures him. Yeah. So maybe the implication is it's already haunted in book three. And what I thought was just sort of, oh, it's a, like a carnival that's not very well run. Maybe their attractions don't work properly. Maybe it's what you're saying is just like the, the evil was already infecting the air yeah. and mm. the mechanics of the place. Yeah, that's definitely the vibe that I got. But all that a very long answer to your question, they were bats from the carnival, from a ride. Where was the mask? Did we see the guy who was going to frame, you know, uh, the ghost? Did we see the trooper discover the mask? Or did he just have it? He didn't have the real mask. He didn't have the real mask. No, the real mask was lodged in a tree at the end of the carnival. Right. I remember that. And that's where Teddy, I believe, finds it. Mm-hmm. Uh, But the mask he has is just a mask. Gotcha, gotcha. He's like, I can just drop this anywhere after any crime I commit and people will get it. I mean, the thing (laughs) is, in the films, because Jason doesn't always have the same mask, it's like in the Halloween franchise where people are selling 
the killer's mask or carrying it around with them to like pull pranks on people throughout these franchises. It's just, you can buy them at any store, I guess. Mm-hmm. I love in the <laughs> Wikipedia I'm reading of all these uh, Friday the 13th deaths in the novels, they count deaths that are just like died in a car crash before the book, <laughs> succumbed to lung cancer. It's just like, oh, <laughs> civilian infected by rabies. These are mm-hmm. things that are just mentioned offhand throughout mm-hmm. the series. That they've just decided, no, that's part of the kill count, you know? Lung cancer was a killer. Yeah, I would say there's probably like a soft kill count and a hard kill count. This guy on Goodreads has listed, best insult, you're the world's biggest fungus brain. Can't disagree with it. (laughs) Is that from this book? (laughs) Yeah, apparently. I think it is, yeah. I think someone might say it to someone, but I can't remember who. One of the boys. All right, I've got a passage here, a Teddy passage. Which, as Annie, you said, just really good characterization of Teddy and, and sort of setting up why he would become the um, mm. the killer. So let's see. Do, 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 do. Yeah, it does seem it does seem fairer to me, I think, the, the version of the mask sort of uh, taking on some inner darkness that compels you to kill than just like the scenarios that happened in the first book where just a, a, a poor innocent hunter whose only crime was hunting in the off season um i don't know it, it sort of feels a bit like you know in um you know in like movies where you like you kind of have to the, the a demon takes your soul or mm-hmm. something it always feels fairer to me when it kind of like persuades you mm-hmm. like to give your soul away even by like giving you a choice that's not really a choice or like some kind of coercion or something it always feels much more unfair to me when it's like a demon can take your soul just by killing you i don't know i think it's also just narratively more compelling to have it be mm. yes that the the person even though they are a captive of the mask still has agency yeah. in that who they are yeah. matters because in the yes, case of the I hunter, agree. who they are doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I and it's I, I think maybe just the mask has like a beggars can't be choosers attitude. <laughs> you know, if it gets somebody that realistically, how many people are gonna pick me up and Yes. <laughs> yes. I will say the hunter the hunter with a heart of gold wants <laughs> to kill deer in the uh, off season. He it, there is something because the first one is called Mother's Day and the hunter does have a dead mother mm. and he is also carrying the still alive head of Pamela Voorhees around with him throughout that book. So there is he's also a hunter. I, I feel like there is more justification to it being him okay. that he has the abilities to do what needs to be done in that novel. He has guns and knives he is willing to take on this mother figure it it doesn't feel as random as it could okay here's my teddy passage at the sight of her boyfriend missy squealed loudly and threw her arms around his neck dave she showered him with kisses he grinned but leaned back so he was out of reach did i hear someone say lost he asked slick whose light brown hair was indeed slick at the moment it was still wet from the shower and the rain Turned his head to look back at his teammate. Yeah, he says. Look like looks like Buzzy blew it again. I did not blow it. Teddy insisted from the front, where he was still wrestling with the map. There was supposed to be a sign for the turn off to Route 107. Someone must have taken the sign down. This excuse was met with a blast of laughter from almost everyone in the van. Poor Teddy thought Summer. 
he could never do anything right. In one famous incident last spring, Slick had spread the word that Friday the 13th would be dress-up weird day. Everyone was supposed to wear a crazy costume, but then the principal got wind of it and told Slick he'd get suspended if he went ahead with the plan. So Slick spread the word, dress normal. Somehow, poor Buzzy didn't get the message. He was the only kid at Carville who arrived in costume. That Friday, he came to school wearing an orange dress and a fright wig. He was sent home. Now, first of all, I want to say, if this happened in real life, I think they would think he was cool. But, (laughs) especially in in the present day, which this doesn't take place in. But yeah, good Buzzy, which Buzzy's the school mascot that Teddy is dressed up as, which is why he's sort of interchangeably referred to as Buzzy. There's good Buzzy backstory there. That's also just very economic storytelling on that page where it hits like four different characters and gives you one trait they have that's very important. So Slick Mm. is very careless with people's emotions to the point of cruelty. Missy is very needy. Um, Yeah, it's just uh, towards the beginning of this book, I'm going, okay, I kind of get people's roles. And then I just feel Mm. like their arcs don't all pay off. Like, I can't really tell you where Missy gets to emotionally, if that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that might just be a genre thing, really. Right. I mean, it's it's rare in this franchise in general for people to have any sort of fulfilling arc. I mean, I think back to what we both agree is the best film, the fourth film, Mm -hmm. the final chapter, which was the fourth of now 12 movies. So that's a lie. Uh, (laughs) And Crispin Glover's character has an arc in that movie, per se. You know, he's horny and alone he's hung up on some girl and is able to have a successful weekend of debauchery and sex and then gets murdered Mm -hmm. but that's more characterization than most people get in this series so i think it's it's hard to say like well where do they get to emotionally what is their arc what do they learn i guess when that's not really what they're here for yeah i guess the survivors do both actually get a chance at self-actualization because summer well i guess (laughs) summer's whole problem is that she's still in love with slick who is just like Mm -hmm. bad news boyfriend wise and i guess it's actually not really anything that summer does but the bats take care of slick for her he dies horribly (laughs) ripped apart by bats so essentially summer can no longer be hung up on slick um in a in a corporeal physical sense she may still be very grieving obviously um but russ i guess who also survives um also gets a kind of moment of self-actualization in that he he finally tells his girlfriend belinda to to stop bossing him around um and also i guess it kind of hints that he is maybe really in love with summer Mm -hmm. uh and Mm -hmm. he he rescues summer as well um so i guess yeah not exactly like to totally kind of well russ's russ's arc i guess is more obviously kind of heroic uh than summer's but they both kind of have a problem that is identified prior to the kind of um supernatural and murderous shenanigans and uh they both have that problem resolved by the end i'm trying to think where the other protagonists end up in these prior novels because in the first book which i think has quite 
interesting interiority for its protagonist. She's alive at the end of the book, but by the second book, she's just like, no, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I'm going to college. So she's clearly moved on in some regard. I think it's, there's an argument to be said that the protagonist not being in the second book is kind of a a poor writing choice. The, the, The reason that I'm even complaining about people not having great character arcs in this is because in the first book of the series, there is an arc that kind of underpins the whole book that is like mm-hmm. a a girl who may maybe like puberty was recent for her or maybe for whatever reason she's just getting more male attention than she's used to and she's sort of like thinking about that a lot and being like this is weird no one wanted to talk to me before now everyone does uh basically is presented with the choice of you know which romantic partner to take and is, is sort of really irresistibly drawn to this one guy and her arc in the first book is to discover that the ways in which people are surface level attractive that they're charismatic that they're funny are not actually indicative of quality of character sure uh and i just think it's so well executed that the the books after that have just seemed to be lacking that element. And I kind of agree with you, Annie. I don't need that from a slasher, but the fact that it's already existed in the series makes me feel Mm. the absence. And there must be a weird calculation as a writer of a slasher where you're going, what characters do I like? Do I want to see succeed? Because I'll give Summer a Mm -hmm. full arc. I'll give Russ a full arc. But playing God in this scenario, as the author does, you also have to go, this character I think is just kind of immoral and he's going to be, you know, fodder for Jason's killings. Mm. I think this fourth book is 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 very thin on sort of cogent through line. And, and I think the creativity that we were talking about, which I love, all these creative ideas, of like the bats are back, the, the carnival's still kind of there, Uh, We haven't even talked about the fact that the van comes alive. Like the mask can Mm. possess the team's van and and try to try to do manslaughter with it. Um, All of that stuff is really great, except it doesn't tie together into sort of one aesthetic. Uh, It's sort of missing a the carnival. You know, it's just a bunch of very different ideas. I think you're right there because you know, as we mentioned, the first book in establishing this universe does a good job the second book really adds the interiority of the killer which is not present Mm -hmm. in the first book which i think is sort of the high point of that novel and it's also quite tied to the characters of the first book and that they it is a sibling of one of the victims that is our protagonist Mm -hmm. and with the third one you have all of this additional supernatural stuff that i think because this is the last of the officially officially released books, you want it to have more of a culmination, mm-hmm. but it feels more of just, you know, sort of an off episode on the way to the series finale than a finale itself. Yeah. Well, as far as kills go, what what sort of kills stand out to you you two in this in this book? I think um, Dave's quite like. Oh, Dave's where he gets whole... his throat torn out during like a yeah. wrestling match, basically. Yeah, I thought Dave's kill was definitely like the most uh, physically interesting. Mm-hmm. I kind of imagine it as like a fight scene in a movie. It's kind of in. It's kind of funny that 
Jason is yeah, Jason is possessing Teddy, the nerd, Dave's the the jock, and initially it looks like uh Teddy is going to kill Dave by like shoving his head in the toilet. Like literally giving him a swirly. Uh-huh. But like Dave almost like gets the upper hand for a second. He kind of like fights back. So that's kind of a bit more physically interesting than I think the other two um, people who are killed uh, by Teddy, who are both Mindy and Belinda, who don't really fight back. So there's like an actual struggle, and Dave kind of um, really, really wails on him, um, and it looks like he's kind of looks like he he may have even kind of um, knocked yeah Jason down for a second, and he's very then surprised that Jason gets back up. And then, yeah, then you suddenly see this kind of moment of Teddy's interiority where he's imagining it all as a wrestling match. Mm-hmm. And he, like, pins Dave to the floor and, like, he's picturing, um, you know, he's he's sort of saying, I'm copying moves I've seen in wrestling. And he's, like, almost imagining an imaginary ref hitting the floor. Right. <laughs> um, and, yeah, but then he's, he's frustrated because Dave's not playing ball. Dave's winded. Um, and then he just rips out his throat. I thought that was, it was action packed. I could imagine it. It was, you know, it was fun. I mean, I think in slashers, the most effective way to do killings is either kills that, you know, somehow play into the character themselves Mm. in terms of, uh, there's one of the Friday 13th movies similar to this where uh, a boxer is punching Jason on a rooftop and punches him hundreds and hundreds of times. And, Jason just takes all of them and the guy says, all right, give me your best shot. And Jason just knocks his head off. <laughs> like, I think that's yeah. fun. Or I think it should be with some sort of creative weapon. Yeah. And I feel like these books have not done a great job of having, you know, a variety of stabbing implements mm-hmm. for Jason. Mm-hmm. It's been a lot of guns, a lot of knives, a lot of just simple objects. And, you know, that's what I wish there was more of was, if it's, I mean, if it's a sports team, a football doesn't really work, but if it was like a track and field team and he's, you know, throwing javelins at people and bludgeoning people with a, whatever, a discus or a, anything, like, I think that would be more fun in this sort of right. scenario than what is happening. Yeah, he, he kills them with a tire iron, right? Because that was how Teddy got possessed. He was, he was like putting a, um, yeah, he was like replacing the wheel on the van. Which I didn't really understand why, because they like they made pretty clear that when the van crashed, it was pretty messed up. Like, it's yeah, like not starting, and and it's like totally it's totaled against this tree. And he's like Teddy's just like I'll I'll change a tire. They think That'll I can't make everyone change a happy tire, with me, but I can. Yeah, that was the whole thing. <laughs> just, yeah, just like I mean, like really really fixing deck chairs on the Titanic here. But <laughs> it's when he's when he's like changing the tire that he he get, gets possessed so he his like weapon of choice is a tire iron but I, I agree with you andrew i think they could have found something a bit more fun mm-hmm. the, the my favorite of the book so far has been the carnival because it makes such a strong aesthetic choice now in the movies the strong aesthetic choices are bad because when jason takes manhattan uh or when jason you know what else does he do? He goes to space. He fights a psychic. He goes to space. Those are some of the worst movies, but in the book, you know, we don't have the visuals of Jason stalking around a camp, which is what basically the movies 
just get all their juice from is isn't it scary that this man in a mask is walking around a camp while teenagers party and drink we don't have that at all so uh, when they make a strong aesthetic choice like carnival uh it it opens up a whole world of possibilities we can have carnival murder implements we can have carnival murder settings they happen on rides uh yeah. it feels like a, a de-escalation to go from carnival to our aesthetic is road trip Especially because the first two books were essentially road trips in a way. Yes. <laughs> uh, with a little more of a reason for them to come to Crystal Lake itself. No, I, I certainly agree that it's interesting because I feel like, you know, some we've read a lot of books on this podcast and a lot of them, their strength is that you're getting additional backstory, additional interiority. But I would argue that, especially with a series like Friday the 13th, that is so much just about tension and release and just scares and kills mm-hmm. that you watch those scenes. And part of the fear of them that gets you scared is just someone walking through a quiet room in a dark space and you don't know where the killer is going to be. And having anyone's interiority in that moment is not what those are about. These people, we don't need to know, you know, I'm sad that my mother died. So I'm like walking around (laughs) and thinking about things. You're just like, oh, this person is tense. So I am tense. That is all I need. And so adding anything to that is sort of going against the formula that makes this franchise as long lasting as it's been. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the interiority is only helpful really when it is for the killer when it's explaining how because that's the one difference to me between the movies and the book that's the big difference is like the killers are not just Jason Voorhees they are Jason Voorhees married to another existing person and so I love when we get in the head of the people who become the murderers but so much of the other interiority comes off as like rote or obvious as you say like I don't need people being like, I am scared because I'm about to die. It's like, obviously. Um, (laughs) It is shocking to see that, looking back through the book as I am now, that he truly doesn't put on the mask until page 90. Let Let me just read the passage where he puts the mask on. It is really good stuff. And this is usually happening on like page six of these books. I mean, in the second book, a big red is fishing and he catches the mask which is at the bottom of the lake and it's on his face it's like chapter two and then we're off to the races but this time page 90 instantly he started screaming and oh here we go feeling faint teddy slipped the mask onto his head instantly he started screaming in pain he staggered down the ravine fell rolling in the wet leaves tumbling all the way down to the van he grabbed the van's door handle pulled himself up but then the pain started again. He crashed back into the van, shouting in agony. He arced his back. His arms raised themselves in the air like paws, then slapped onto the mask from both sides. But he couldn't get the mask off. And then he realized that he didn't want to take the mask off. Teddy groaned with pleasure. Suddenly, he was feeling stronger every second. He looked down in amazement at his skinny arms as the biceps popped out. First the left, then the right. Like that uh, moment when a balloon first begins to inflate. There was a loud scrape of skin against metal as his body spurted up several inches in height. He yelled in agony as his bones stretched. 
Teddy flexed his hands. They were hairy now. They felt strong enough to rip the heads off the biggest jocks in the world. That last line, tying it back and being like, this is not just a thing acting upon him. He has thoughts for how to use it already in this moment of agony. <laughs> I thought that was good. I, yeah, I, I quite appreciated that. I guess not having um, as much background knowledge on these movies, it sort of, yeah, it kind of it kind of made sense to me. It tied in with the first one almost in my head where I was just like, oh, okay. So there, there's a, an unknown supernatural element that uh, takes your kind of like, yeah, desire for vengeance and kind of turns you into physically kind of superior super killer. It's much more interesting to me than the the slasher villain that's in so many movies, which, you know, doesn't yeah. have a personality and, and is sort of a killing machine. Uh, on paper, it's much more interesting to me. It, it just has to do with execution. Um, sure. So when they really lean into that, this is a this is a Jason slash dweeb hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's part of what the appeal of a franchise like Scream is. Mm -hmm. Not that you can always assume who the killer is at the beginning of the movie, but to be able to watch the movie and, you know, how the characters are killed through the lens of, oh, this is someone putting on this persona and killing people because they've wronged them or they're trying to mm. do x or y or z i think it is fun to see it that way and certainly makes uh, it more compelling in book form yeah I, I i totally agree i have a question for you too which is how does the teddy villain die in this because that went in one ear and out it, the other for me i think i can do a, a decent uh, approximation so, um, Teddy kidnaps Summer and takes her to the shrine of Jason in the cave. There, Summer fights back. Um, they get into a tussle. And then Russ comes in with a flaming torch. Mm -hmm. And he first knocks Teddy over and then he sets his clothes on fire. And while... Yeah, Teddy's kind of rolling around, being like, oh my god, I'm on fire. Uh, Summer and Russ make their escape. Um, but because he's Jasonified, being on fire isn't enough to stop him. So he chases after them. He grabs Summer and wrestles with her. And she grabs his mask and pulls it away from his face, taking teddy's face off with it mm -hmm. um it's yeah i guess a thing where both the kind of heat of the flames but also the kind of yeah supernatural attachment that happens once you put on the mask um occurs and then i think just to like be like yeah he really is dead now he falls out of the entrance of the cave and off a cliff <laughs> Just to hear it said is very funny. Just, to, just make sure. to make sure we got him. Just to make sure he steps right off a cliff. Yeah. That satisfies that part of my brain that's like, we need to see someone torn limb from limb or they're not dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's kind of, it's aware of that, like, eventuality in horror movies. Yeah. And it's just very like, no, he really is dead. <laughs> and even, I think, makes a point of being like, later when the police found his body, just to be like, he's really dead now. Like... Yeah. 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 
they're anticipating your anticipation. Andrew Marco. All right, Andrew Marco. He's got the mask back on. <laughs> looking looking very uh very very scary. Here we go. Andrew Marco, you are terribly in love with your boyfriend. It causes you to recommend books to him several times a day to the point where he's like, you're embarrassing me. You're only allowed to recommend <laughs> books to me three times a day. You, this isn't the best book we've ever read. You already recommended him Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Willow. And you've got one more sure. recommendation you can <laughs> give him for the day. Would you choose Friday the 13th Road Trip by Eric Morse? No. Uh, <laughs> it was my least favorite of the four that we've read. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think it offers enough. Like there were things I didn't like about two and three but I thought they offered enough new mm -hmm. to warrant a reading. This one didn't have those things for me, and I can't recommend it within the series uh, of these books. If I had to rank them, I'd put it fourth. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. Uh, Annie Kelly. Uh, I got to think for a second. Annie Kelly. <laughs> uh, uh, you, oh, okay. Annie Kelly. You are in a bowling league. <laughs> you think you're content with your life. But then mm. one day, your buddy comes to the bowling league and says, I just went to the most amazing book club you could ever imagine. And ever since you've heard that, you are possessed with the desire to pick up a book. Knowing what you know, would you recommend to yourself as a midlife crisis Departure, Friday the 13th, Road Trip by Eric Morse. I would not, because there are lots of point horror books which I think do a similar thing and do not feature any American football. <laughs> fair. Very fair. Uh, Marco, I'm ready. Andrew Overby. Yes? You are a career state trooper in the state of Massachusetts, <laughs> though you were formerly in New Jersey. Uh, your wife, you've discovered, is cheating on you with your best friend. Great. You are given I the choice. I love being this guy. <laughs> <laughs> you are given the choice to create a complicated double murder, suicide framing as described in the book, or you may torture them another way by recommending <laughs> them to read a novelization. Would you recommend Friday the 13th Road Trip as that novelization? Yeah, this is a this is a scenario that's tough to answer. I wouldn't recommend it to them because I don't think it's so bad as to qualify as torture. <laughs> but I also wouldn't recommend it to them because I wanted to impart joy. I also don't love it. It's somewhere in the middle. I agree with you, Marco. Between torture and joy. Yeah, between torture and joy. It's definitely my least favorite of the four, uh, just because it feels like it has so many ideas, but they're not tied together. It feels like this sort of a miscellaneous grab bag of slasher concepts. 
and I really appreciate the 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 gumption behind a lot of these choices that he's made. I hope that as as Annie sort of suggested that a, a book that he releases on his own, not under the banner of this publisher, allows him to explore these very vibrant ideas in a more realized way, as opposed to what we get here, which is a slasher I feel like I've seen a million times that is surrounded by or has all of these different interesting concepts dancing around it. They don't feel intrinsically linked, you know? It feels like uh, a, an inappropriate dressing put on a salad, and now I'm going, you know what, I would love to have that dressing on a dish where it really where it really pops. Mm-hmm. Great. Did that metaphor track? It was a simile, I think, because I used like or as. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sure. made sense to me, yes. Wonderful. <laughs> cutting cutting literature criticism here on the on the author I'd podcast. Uh, Annie Kelly, you have various projects, and what are they? And where should people find them? And, and what happens within them? <laughs> okay, so uh, I am the UK correspondent for a podcast called QAnon Anonymous, uh, which looks at QAnon amongst other conspiracy theories and I suppose digital strangeness. Uh, and you can go listen to us on any podcasting app. I also ran a little podcast limited series called Vaccine the Human Story. We have all six episodes out now, uh, which is about the history of the smallpox vaccine and the first ever anti-vax movement. Um, And that's on all podcasting apps and also on YouTube with some lovely visuals. Amazing. Uh, To our listeners... Please rate our podcast. Please review our podcast. Please rate our podcast. I did it again. I'm keeping it all in. Iconoclast. Please rate our little radio play. Please, please (laughs) review our podcast. Uh, Please uh, recommend it to your friends. Uh, And as usual, because we are a serious literature podcast, I'm going to read a uh, passage from a famous piece of literature. And please do tweet at me and let me know if you recognize what this is from. So here we go. Hmm. I'm really trying to find information on this fourth book in the Camp Crystal Lake series, which is a sequel, but also a bit of an interquell to the Friday the 13th novels. However, since it has Road Trip in the title, I keep getting things from TripAdvisor. (laughs) This is becoming a very tragic tale of two cities because everything I get tells me about going from one city to another. (laughs) All right, please tweet at me if you recognize what famous work of literature that is from and uh, have a wonderful day. 